Hello and welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. Get ready for some entertaining stories. In this next episode, I speak with Joe Bullis, the owner of Bulldog Insights. Joe is a close friend and I really appreciate his honesty when talking about the different aspects of his career growth and success trajectory. It wasn't all smooth sailing for Joe. We talk about how concussions from football impacted his confidence and contributed to his struggles at Virginia Tech. After some time, he found his way to Marquette, and we learn about a very special person who helped him get his first job at EDS. We hear about the ups and downs of his exciting career at MicroStrategy, and we cover his favorite soft skill that everyone should have, as well as how important leadership opportunities are and why you should take them seriously. So many great stories and great advice. Enjoy this episode. Today, we are talking with Joe Bolas, who's a dear friend and someone who I think people will get a kick out of. And also, I think you have a very interesting story as it relates to your own career and how you've navigated that. And so I appreciate us getting the chance to talk. And there's some really cool things that I think you can talk about that are unique to your experience that, as you know, we like to have hopefully some young adults that listen to this as well as those that are Uh, maybe more senior, (laughs) because I think that at any point in your life when you're at a crossroads or you might be trying to think about what to do next or just, you know, everybody has these pivots and turns. And so it's a great opportunity to hear from other people. And I consider you a super successful dude. And so, you know, how has that come to be and and how, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> right. You got to so, knock on wood now too. Yeah. Okay. Knocking, <laughs> knocking on wood. Yes. Tell me a little bit about Bulldog Insights and what you've created and how that came to fruition. Bulldog Insights Group is a company kind of founded on my passion, which is all things data. Yeah. Um, I'm a my company is a team of it's me and and a team of data engineers who basically can make magic happen. Really, with with data, we take data from all kinds of sources and turn them into what I call eye candy. So, you know, there are so many ways that we do it. And some of the brand names that you've heard of that we work with very frequently are anything from MicroStrategy to Tableau to Power BI, and then all the data sources on the back end. There was no end in sight to the number of data sources from Salesforce to SAP to Snowflake databases to, to big data. So, that's what my company does. It's what I've been doing since I joined or got into this line of work mm-hmm. back in 1998 when I joined MicroStrategy. And it's just been an absolute blast. I do a lot of work with the federal government and uh, a number of other commercial clients. And I just I just absolutely love it. You and I, at about the same time, decided to go out on our own. And we actually just had a conversation about this a couple, a couple of days ago about you know, the both of us being, I think, products are a part of bigger organizations where we were both really happy and had impact and enjoyed what we did. Right. There was I think mm-hmm. there for a variety of reasons, you know, we both and we'll talk about that more ended up doing our own thing. And then we've also talked about how great that is and how liberating that is. Tell me just a little bit about the nerves aspect of it or you know when you were going out on your own what were some of the things that you were worried about and then in terms of you growing the business and working at this like what are some of the surprises like were those nerves realized or was it actually the opposite and easier than you thought it would be 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think I want to say that if I was courageous, I would have started my own thing like 15 <laughs> years ago. I know. I know. I was always that guy, you know, I, I wanted to retire at MicroStrategy. I want to say that first. Yeah. But even when I was there, loving every minute of my work there, and even then when I went on to a spinoff of MicroStrategy at Clarebridge, I always did have a yearning to start my own thing, but I never, you know, I never pulled the trigger. And when I did finally get the opportunity after leaving Clarebridge and then taking some time off, and doing some soul searching, I did finally decide, you know what? I, I just, it's now or never. I was in my late forties and I just needed to actually give it a try or I was going to, you know, regret it for the rest of my life. I already had enough regrets for waiting so long to, yeah. to start it, but I finally did it. And, you know, I, I did uh, a couple of really cool dashboards for some uh, some friends who were in the sales world who, uh, you know, they had they had Tableau and they had tons of data, like mountains of data. But every time they asked for some kind of dashboard or some kind of insight, it took like three weeks or a month for, for their team to get it to them. And I've always been pretty fast at what I do and also really good at kind of the data visualization. So took that first contract as an opportunity to just see, can I can I make a living doing this rather than going to be full-time employed by another employer again? And after six months, I was like, what in the heck is wrong with what? Why wasn't I more courageous to try this like when I was younger? But I, I don't really have regrets because I had a great career leading up to it. Right. So that, that one contract that lasted about six months was enough for me to kind of get underway and get confidence enough to know that I could just kind of make a living doing what I was doing. Then I landed on a project with the federal government at Housing and Urban Development. I didn't realize it, but I was actually, I was kind of in a trial. I was I was in kind of a, a test for a month that I didn't realize I was a part of. They were seeing if I was a seeing if I was a dumbass or not. So after about a month, they were like, hey, Turns out, you know, you're not a dumbass. And, uh, well, at we least in the context you... of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so it, they yeah. uh, they said, hey, we we actually just got a new uh, contract with HUD, and it lasts. Two, it's going to be two years, and we wonder if you'd like to stay for two years. And I was like, well, not as an employee, right? I want to be a contractor, and I want to be able to bring new people on and grow my grow my business. And they were like, we wouldn't have it any other way. And I said, well, geez. So that was three years ago. And now I'm in my my third year of the same contract. And all the while, I'm also able to work projects on the side as well as staff. Put, put contractors I know through my years and years in this industry, put contractors I know on other projects that come my way. So it's been, been really fun. Yeah. In terms of that, I think, you know, you're someone who has a really good network, right? So I think, tell me a little bit about how you've cultivated that. And I'm not sure it's, it's intentional or, or otherwise I'm curious, you know, I talk a lot about soft skills and, and we'll talk more later about your favorite, but in terms of the networking opportunities or the way that you've cultivated and maintained relationships, just tell me a little bit about that. And, and if it, and if it has been intentional, in terms of how you've grown that over time? 
So that's a great question. And I don't know if I know the answer to how I cultivate my network. I just am who I am and I'm, I'm kind of loud, whether I'm in person or uh, on LinkedIn or on Facebook, I'm just a loud mouth. But I will say that a lot of my network was developed, I don't know if the word is organically or not, but when I was at MicroStrategy for my first eight years at MicroStrategy, I ran our uh, technical boot camp and then I ran our sales boot camp programs and I trained over 2,000 people. And many of those 2,000, and it might be more than 2,000, we were, we were running and gunning, but many of those people are in my LinkedIn network and just, and also Facebook friends, I'm Facebook friends with many of them. And, you know, I just have stayed in touch. Uh, I love people and I love staying in touch with people. And once I kind of went out on my own and let a few people know, I honestly, I feel very fortunate because a lot of people just kind of uh, reached out to me and said, hey, if you find any work, keep me in mind. And when I found some work, yeah, I kept some people in mind and, you know, had, to, had a good number of placements of people on contracts, just literally LinkedIn probably hates me because I don't have to pay for their recruiting module. I literally just put a post on LinkedIn and say, uh, hey, I've got a position, right. you know, looking for Snowflake database expertise and Tableau or MicroStrategy and Oracle. And I get direct messages on the side saying, hey, man, I'm, I'm actually going to be available next month. What do you got? Yeah. And uh, I line up the opportunities and I'm always a part of them. I'm always a part of the opportunity. I'm always a part of the work, but uh, that's, that's kind of how my business has grown. I don't have any employees yet right now. It's, it's all these just super vetted people who I know, because I actually, I saw them in training right. and I saw how, I saw how smart they were yeah. and I've watched their careers. And so a lot of the people that I know that I can bring to the table are just awesome. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the idea that you never know when relationships might pop up again, right? So these are people maybe you worked with 10 years ago or longer, right? But the fact that you had a good experience together, they remember you, you know, you become a known entity and you're credible and then they're credible because of your experience with them. And I think one of the things I try to impress upon people really at any age, especially people that are interested in a second act or, you know, people that have a lot of experience or trying to go to the next thing, you know, that network is richer than you think. And so tapping into it and thinking about it and just checking in with people, it's, it can be pretty powerful and lead to great it's opportunities, you know? And, and I think I only learned that in my late twenties. And I've often said, if I'd known it yes. earlier, I would have been so much nicer in high school. <laughs> so, so for your high school listeners, be nice now because, you know, that, that person you're making fun of, they, you could do, you could kind of do business with them later if you're nice now. Were you not <laughs> nice in high school? Oh, I was the same loudmouth I am now. So, <laughs> so there. Be- uh, but maybe, but I might have been on the hazing committee on the football team. So uh, you know, there might have been, you know, there might have been uh, a few too many wedgies in the locker room, stuff like that. So. Well, it actually leads me <laughs> something else that I want to talk to you about because I think you're so, you know. I'm, I'm curious at, at how this has matured over time because you're someone who is very direct. You're someone who I think tells people like it is maybe whether they want to hear it or not. You're certainly opinionated, right? So you've talked about like you're very vocal. So how have those, how has that worked for you? You know, how has that, has that ever been a development area and how has that matured? Like, I think 
it's an important thing to talk about. The one thing I'll say about at least my interactions with you and, and when we've talked about training and development, you know, why I think one of the great challenges that a lot of leaders have is this inability to be direct and be constructive and do it because they're afraid of that conflict. They're afraid of the other person feeling bad. And so what could be developmental now is at the expense of someone else's discomfort with conflict, you know, so there's an art to that, but I, I certainly think that's something that's evolved for you. And I'm curious to know how that's yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I, that's evolved for me, even since you and I went out on our own and started our own thing. I think, well, I'll go back to the early part of my career. I yeah. was really non-confrontational and very, man, I avoided all, all confrontation. I, I wanted to, but then when I ran micro strategy boot camps, they kind of threw me into uh, a pretty, pretty tough role because if you didn't pass micro strategy boot camp, you were, you were canned, you were let go. And, um, and I, they, nobody, I found that that just kind of became one of my responsibilities to let people know that. And it was only because they just kind of threw it on me mm-hmm. and I just thought it was my responsibility, but I should have, I should have said, that's HR's job. Like, <laughs> I'm not doing that crap. But quite frankly, I, I had to learn how to deal with it. And yeah. it just taught me how to, how to be direct with negative, when you had to give negative feedback, taught me how to be direct or I, I taught myself how to be direct. And I actually learned a lot from one of our good friends, Joe Koenig. Really? Uh, just watching. Yeah. Watching him. And I don't know if I've ever even told him this, so this will be weird if he listens to this <laughs> podcast, but of course uh, he you listens. Know, when, we, <laughs> when I lived with him and I, I would watch him like have to bring up uncomfortable subjects, like when somebody hasn't paid their rent, you know, this was back when you had to write checks and give stuff on time. You didn't have automatic automated withdrawals from your checking account. Like just stupid stuff like that that can make conversations uneasy or make things difficult. Mm-hmm. Joe Conan was always just like, hey, I didn't get your rent check for last month. Can you get that to me? And I'd be like, oh, damn, I forgot. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, your one-stop shop for workshops, coaching, speaking, and soft skills development. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.tfasoftskills.com for more information. And then I, I realized the magic in what he would do was that he was he he didn't assume malice. Mm-hmm. He did not assume, he did not, there was no presumption of malice. He, he just knew I forgot to write a check right? Uh, or somebody or somebody else in the house had forgotten to write a check. And so when you, like a lot of times when people have to have that, have a com- confrontation, mm-hmm. they assume malice. Like if you get, somebody cuts you off in the road, there's so many instances of road rage that happened because they assume malice. That that son of a gun must have cut me off because what, he wanted to cut me off and almost run me off the road and cause an accident? No, probably just didn't even see you. Right. Um, And so when you you come at a tough conversation with the presumption that there is no malice on the other side. So when people would fail boot camp, it wasn't 
it wasn't <laughs> malicious. They weren't trying to fail yeah. boot camp. They weren't trying to. I would presume that they, I would assume they weren't slackers. They just didn't get it and yeah. something didn't click. And we'd just have a tough conversation and say, we don't think you're a fit. So that was the first piece of the magic. The other piece of the magic, you know, that makes tough conversations like that easier is to ask, first ask the other person, how do you think you did? Or how do you think we think you did? Or just get them talking about what they think this confrontation is about and where they think it's going to go. Then you can kind of tell sometimes that person is completely off and they're just, you know, it is going to be an ugly confrontation. But a lot of times the person's like, yeah, I know I'm this, you know, the software isn't clicking with me and I, I don't think I'm going to be a fit or, you know, if you, you approach somebody who just cut you off, like, Hey man, did you know you cut me off? Or did you, did you see me back there? And they say, I cut you off, you know? Right. So instead of honking at them, flipping them off and cussing them out, you just presume no malice. You ask them what their thought was of the situation and it's a much more peaceful conversation. And it's, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think a little humanity, right? Just being, you know, understanding that everybody's coming from this different perspective. And I love what you said about asking people first. I think you, just that's so powerful. Then you know the person's position, where they're, you know, how self-aware they are. It just gives you so much information <laughs> to work it, from. It really does. Let's talk a little bit about, I want to kind of back up and then I'm interested in how the MicroStrategy gig happened because that was such an influential piece for you. But in terms of high school to college, and I know you played sports and you've talked to me about how you think a concussion has played a part in, in what happened for you as you went to college. So I'd love to talk about that a bit more. And I guess, tell me first, like in terms of high school, were you a good student? Were you somebody that the academics were pretty easy for you, mm-hmm. right? And and you did well. And so tell yeah. me, tell me kind of what happened after that. Yeah, I was always a very good student. I was mostly A's. I would always have one B and it was always in history. And it was always because I decided I was a math and science brain. Yeah. And so I just didn't even, didn't even put effort into history. But I think that was mostly because history required so much reading and I hated reading. Mm. So I was a really good student. I was all A's and a B pretty much all the time. And I was really into sports. I uh, played football my whole life from like second or third grade on up through through high school. And there probably was no bigger fan of football than this guy right here. I, I just like absolutely lived and breathed football and loved it. I had a few bell ringers, true concussions, where I just didn't know where I was. One time was my junior year of football, and I know the practice was on a Wednesday, and I I played center and defensive end, but mostly center, and centers get a lot of concussions because there's impact on every play. And quite frankly, our nose guard was one of the meanest bastards who uh, could really, really hit. So the guy who I... Uh, would go up against. His name was George Maldonado, and he, man, he could ring my bell. Um, but so could our linebackers. And anyway, there was just the drill that we were running, and I just got my bell rung many, many times during this during this drill. And when the practice ended, we were walking off the walking off the field, 
walking into the locker room and I didn't I didn't know where I was. And I was with Bill Eager, our beloved friend. And I said, and Eager, I used to carpool with Eager. I would drive him home. And I said, uh, we're walking into the locker room. And I said, Eager, why aren't we going to the field? What Are we practicing or not? What are we doing? And he was like, what? Like, what the hell is wrong with you? He actually, as, as my life goes, he thought I was kidding. And he was like, uh, he starts laughing. And he's like, that's not one of your better jokes, Bullis. He probably said something like that. Yeah. And lo and behold, we got checked out by the trainer. I had a pretty severe concussion. That was on Wednesday. Uh, and I played in the game on Saturday. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Against the, the Matha Catholic of all schools, by the way, <laughs> where uh, where they put more more team, more players into the NFL than any other high school in the U.S. <laughs> or, or they're close to it. So, you know, I went and played against uh, these mountains of men and uh, with a, you know, fresh concussion that certainly wasn't healed. Anyway, I don't want to dwell on that yeah. incident. What, yeah. what ended up happening, my academics started to slide, maybe not right after that, but I got more concussions and my academics slid in my senior year, and I thought it was senior slump because, you know, I had applied to all the colleges I wanted, I'd taken the SATs. I just thought it was senior slump. And quite frankly, it, you know, it took probably 15 to 20 years for me to figure out that it wasn't. Um, it was, believe it or not, it was uh, when all the awareness started coming to the forefront about concussions and that movie Concussion with Will Smith came mm-hmm. out about that doctor in Pittsburgh who studied the brains of uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. In fact, the Pittsburgh Steeler whose brain he studied was a, was a center, um, Mike, Webster, Mike Webster. Um, but really the thing that really connected most for me was an article in Sports Illustrated about a player who was from the University of Richmond who committed suicide. He was a football player at University of Richmond and they, they wrote about him and, you know, they wrote about his sad suicide and that he'd had a bunch of concussions. And the suicide note that he left was basically me in college. When I first left high school and went to Virginia Tech, I couldn't remember a thing. I went from being a almost all-A's student with a really, really good photographic memory to not being able to pass basic tests in the early, in the first month of wow. my first semester. You know, those... Those first tests they give you in the first semester, they're not they're not hard. You know, you're taking chemistry or history or whatever classes you're taking. You know, the schools aren't trying to make you fail. Right. <laughs> and the tests weren't the tests weren't that hard, especially when I reflect back on them now. But I couldn't pass a test because I couldn't remember a thing and I couldn't concentrate and I couldn't read and I just couldn't focus. I thought it Everybody said, you know, when they were hearing about me doing bad, my parents were hearing about my bad grades. Everybody said I was probably partying too much and that I wasn't working hard enough and that I was a jackass. And all of those things were relatively true. And I probably played a little too much intramural football, flag football. But there were things that were really weird, really weird about me. And one of the really weird things was, how deeply I slept. Like when I would get into a sleep, you could not wake me up. My friends threw a full pack of firecrackers on me one time and I didn't wake up. 
Those I, don't uh, sound like very nice friends. <laughs> yeah, great friends. I was late for intramural flag football playoff game, and I was the quarterback. And my teammates were trying to find me, trying to get me, and they're knocking on the door to my dorm at Virginia Tech, like using like sledgehammer like sound, like trying to wake me up. They couldn't wake me up, but I happened to be on the in a first floor dorm, and so they came around to the my window. And my window was unlocked. And one of the guys climbed in the room and he's just like, okay, well, I'm in. Now I'm going to wake him up. And he's rolling me and I'm not, I wouldn't wake up. And he's flabbergasted. He opens the door to the other four guys who are trying to wake me up. And they're like, look at him. Like, and they're rolling me. And it took like five to 10 minutes to wake me up. Wow. And I look back on that and I haven't really really studied this much but i look back on that and i'm i'm all but certain it was my brain healing itself because of all the concussions that i'd had and it took Teresa. it took a good like probably three or four more years for my brain to heal enough to where i feel i felt normal again hmm. i ended up flunking out of virginia tech my advisor at virginia tech told me to join the U.S. Navy and get on a submarine for six years because that's what some other idiot had done who he knew and came back and was like a 4.0 student at Virginia Tech. So I flunked out of Virginia Tech, and I was going to do that. I I wanted to join the Marines. And I was leaving to join the Marines one day, and my mom stole my keys to my car. And I was either going to do the Marines or the Navy because it was the same recruiting office, I always admired the Marines, but then, you know, I kind of liked the idea of the Navy too, but I was headed, I was leaving and told my mom and she stole my keys and then she, she hid them and (laughs) she wouldn't let me go. And it was one of the biggest fights I ever had with, with my mom ever. And I asked her and, you know, she basically just kind of, you know, canceled my whole idea of joining. I asked her a few years later, you know, why did you do that? And she said, I was afraid you'd meet the wrong type of girl. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my mom being a good old Irish mom, just, you know, being a little overly protective of her son. But, you know, with that, I, I was like, well, I guess, you know, the military's out. And by the way, it was hard to get in the military any, anyway, at the time, because they were downsizing because the cold war was ending but that was quite a time for me. And so I worked for a couple of years. And then I went, Then when I was going back to college, uh, decided to go back to college, I was looking at colleges and couldn't go back to Virginia Tech just because it just, I had to change my life altogether. My dad had gone to a Jesuit college, Fordham University in Manhattan. So I looked at that because my aunt still lived up there. And then I, I looked, my brother was in Madison, Wisconsin at the time, working for Deloitte for the state of Wisconsin. And I was like, huh, I always liked that college Marquette and it's Jesuit. And that could be cool. Yeah. Uh, Milwaukee, Milwaukee is beer city. Seems like <laughs> it could be a fit. And, uh, and so I got in, went back and uh, never looked back. Although I will say I was working my butt off, but I could tell my, my synapses were still not all there. Yeah. I still didn't have the the real like photographic memory that I I had. It took me a while to just kind of, just kind of get myself back to who I was. 
Do you think that in part that helped, maybe you already had this before in terms of your work ethic or your drive to do well when it did not come as easily, or you were in that period of trying to figure that out, or you had done so well in school and then you got to college, which should have been an easy transfer. And then that's a pretty significant roadblock to get through. So do you feel like some of that time was character building and created some habits for you that have helped you even now? It was definitely character building, but it was also, it was still supremely frustrating because I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. Honestly, honest to God, I, I just thought my high school was really easy. I, I just thought, okay, academics are really easy until college. That's what I thought. I was like, but then, you know, I just couldn't, I I just couldn't understand why I couldn't, especially at Virginia Tech, but then even in my early part of Marquette, I couldn't understand why I I didn't just ace exams anymore. I was like, what the heck is wrong with me? I was so frustrated. I mean, it amped up my work ethic for sure, but I didn't get, the re like the easy results that I used to get, like when I would work my butt off in mm-hmm. in high school. So it was it was really frustrating, and it was such a revelation later in my life to you know to connect the concussions to what I was going through. And actually, another thing that it wasn't just the story in Sports Illustrated about the University of Richmond kid. It wasn't just the concussion movie with Will Smith. My brother-in-law talked about a friend friend of his who got into a car accident in high school that changed his personality and it changed his personality because of the severe concussion that he had to the point where the guy was just so awful to be around because he was so angry and irritable. Well, that was me. I was like, I was so irritable to Hmm. be with. In fact, I was so, this is kind of a funny story. I was so irritable to be with that my parents who had been seeing this doctor, this, um, my dad's primary care physician was a Hungarian guy who was an absolute riot. His name was Dr. Cabal. Um, he was an absolute riot. My parents talked to him about like me, like what, what can we, what do you, do you have any ideas what's going on with my son? And actually the real funny part of the story is I had gotten really bad poison ivy and I worked in a pharmacy as a cashier. And the pharmacist wasn't supposed to do this, but they would just give you a prescription for, for stuff. This was old school back before, you know, everything was digitized. And the pharmacist gave me a steroid pack for my poison ivy. And I left the steroid. This is, and it's, by the way, it's not anabolic steroids. It's like a yeah. different kind of steroid right. for your skin. Right. Well, my parents found that and found the the steroid in my car and they showed it to their Hungarian Uh doctor and he looked up the drug and he was like, well, this is why your son is so irritable. He's taking steroids. Oh, geez. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyway, I had to go, I had to go, uh, meet with Dr. Cabal and he told me not to take steroids anymore. And I was like, Dr. Cabal, that was for my poison ivy, man. What the, oh my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So, So. I mean, I think what's so interesting, too, what, like you said, in terms of just being able to figure this out and kind of connect the dots, it's also something that, like, messes with your self-esteem and your confidence, right? There's something wrong with you as someone who, like, was successful, and then all of a sudden you're, you're not in a way that you had been, and that's challenging and difficult. So, 
I love that you talked about it. And I feel like, you know, for others that might have this situation, you know, my, my nephew passed away when he was 20 and he had a concussion snowboarding mm. probably oh, a year and a half before that, maybe two. And so there was a lot of discussion and question about, you know, what happened with him and why that happened. And, and he took his own life. And we think that the, he, it just was so out of character, not to say that there aren't people that have mental health issues and it can be triggered in your twenties. I'm not trying to like say that that can't be happen, but in his situation, and now that just based on the story you told, you know, it, it just reaffirms that that's a real distinct possibility that the concussion yeah. really impacted yeah. him. Yeah. So definitely um, for those people that have kids in sports, any sport or not even, you know, accidents, right. It doesn't even have to be sports related, like kind of keeping an eye out for that or having ways to talk about it or getting checked. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. really important. What did you major in in Marquette? Marquette, I was a uh, management information systems okay. major. So that so kind of, I was, t- yeah, I was actually a chemistry major at Virginia Tech. Oh. I wanted to be a doctor. Wanted to be an ophthalmologist. Oh, really? Because I did a report on the eye and vision in fifth grade. I think everyone does. That's when you learn about the senses. <laughs> and uh, man, I was captivated by the eye. And my next door neighbor was an ophthalmologist. My mom always had dreams of having a doctor in the family. Mm-hmm. So I was her last hope because my four siblings are idiots. <laughs> so if they're listening, there you go. That's a little shout out to the Bulla siblings. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'll let yeah. them know I mentioned them. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, when I went to Virginia Tech, as I mentioned, the Cold War was ending yeah. and there was a recession kind of pending or developing. The economy was was pretty tough. Yeah. And uh, my brother was in information systems with Deloitte. And I was like, damn. I mean, I've always had a knack for computing and math. And, you know, like, looks like a pretty surefire way to get a job. And even in a soft economy. So that was my route. And what was your first role out of school? Was it with MicroStrategy or was there a stop in between? Uh, Actually, I thought of something. I I think you'll love this. Uh, And I don't know if I've ever told it to you, but it's perfect for your podcast. especially Especially good for the youngsters out there. Again, this goes back to my mom. My mom got me my first job out of college. Really? And I, I openly admit that. Got a job with EDS. <laughs> but I was wrapping things up at, uh, at Marquette. My best job offer that I was going to take was working for Chicago Title and Trust. And I was going to be a freaking COBOL programmer, an old language, old mainframe language. And I was going to be recoding systems to account for the Y2K problem. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right. The excitement, the unbelievable excitement. Well, <laughs> that's the job I was going to take. But my mom was working hard to find jobs back here that I could apply for. And she found this one in the Washington Post Help Wanted ads um, for electronic data systems. They said they're looking for systems engineers. I said, Mom, I'm not a systems engineer. That sounds like more of a programmer. She said, just apply. And she sent me the fax number, and I faxed my resume with a cover letter from Kinko's. Good gosh, we're old, Teresa. So I, I faxed it in, and then I never heard from her. And she goes, she goes, you need to call. And I go, I will. And she goes, every day she called me for a week and said, did you call? And I said, no, but I will. No, but I will. No, but I will. She called. She called EDS and said, 
Uh, she was calling on behalf of her son. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfasoftskills.com for more information. She made up some excuse about, you know, the time zones, you know, because <laughs> we were whopping one hour behind in Milwaukee and and uh, long distance charges and all this other crap. And she, uh, you know, she said she said that I had called. But she had that I hadn't heard back, oh. and uh, she was just calling on my behalf because she was local and all this stuff. I got a call. I came back for Christmas break. I got an interview and I got a job, and it was it was the job of my life. I was on a U.S. Army contract, and I got to travel three to six weeks at a time to Army uh, posts all around the world, implementing the new hardware and software that ran army housing offices. And I was like, ah, they're probably going to send me to Leavenworth in Kansas and Fort Stewart. I'm, you know, a young guy. They're not going to send me anywhere good. I started, I went to Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. I came back and went to Alaska for six weeks during the summer solstice. I came back oh, and went gosh. to, went to Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, which is on the Jersey shore um, in August. It was beautiful. I came back and went to Hawaii for a month. I came back and went to Fort Monroe, Virginia. Nothing exciting, but it's a pretty cool fort. <laughs> I came back and I came back and went to Germany for seven weeks. And then I came yeah. back, did a few other stops. And then somebody had quit on the help desk in Germany. And they asked me if I would want to move over there and work the help desk. And I was like, for how long? And they said, for as long as you want. And I went over there. I moved and worked for U.S. Army in he near Heidelberg, Germany. Uh, for seven months. Did and, you leave uh, EDS to do that? No, I was. Oh, I was you were still, still part of EDS. Yeah. Okay. Then I came back and went through EDS's ten-week system engineering development program, uh, and actually ended up staying on as an assistant instructor. So I did that for twenty weeks, and then I went on another project, the Joint Recruiting Information System (JRIS), and uh, and then you know that project kind of fizzled out, and they told us to find different projects. And it was around that time that, uh, you know, EDS was still a pretty stiff company. And this is going to sound so, so petty, but you still had to wear a suit and tie and a jacket. And this was when the world was going business casual. Yeah. And one of, one of my criteria for projects at EDS was, are you guys business casual yet? And they'd be like, oh, no, no, full suit and tie. And uh, like at EDS, if you got up to go to the bathroom from your cubicle, you had to put your jacket on. You couldn't go to the bathroom. You know, you had to be, you know, stiff. And uh, so, like, I looked for projects that were business casual, and there weren't too many. And so then I went looked at a job at MicroStrategy because <laughs> they were business casual. And uh, I took, took the job and never looked back. Yeah. Yeah. That is awesome. <laughs> hey, I think knowing what, you know, that we talk about culture a lot, right. In terms of when you're looking for jobs and knowing what it is that you want out of that next opportunity and being clear about that. So when you went to MicroStrategy, was there, we were just talking about this, but it was still startup-y, right? Like it wasn't a proven entity. So was there any feeling of, um, did you know anyone that was there or did you feel like there was a risk or was it just kind of all of it seemed attractive because it was sort of on the rise and seemed like they were doing exciting things. It seemed, 
it seemed attractive. They gave stock options. Uh, I got a thousand, I don't know, 1500 stock options. It just seemed, it seemed awesome. My colleague who did the exact same job as me at MicroStrategy, she had the same trajectory. She came in a little after me at EDS, um, but did the same traveling thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, then she did the same 20 weeks in the training program. She found this job at MicroStrategy and she recruited me. She was like, you're gonna, you would love it here. Well, EDS had this renowned training program and you know it was so professionally run and just so well done um, that when I took the job at MicroStrategy, I just kind of had this like, you know, I have my questions. It's a smaller right. company and how's, how's the training gonna be? Um, well, I get to the training on the first day and it was, it was comical because it was uh, it was in the dungeon of the Towers Crescent building in Tyson's, Virginia. And I think I was, well, I wasn't, but there were some people like seated like behind these massive three foot columns. So we had like 33 people jammed yeah. into a room. Some people couldn't even see the teacher. Um, and I was like, and, and they were just using these like folding tables and crappy chairs. I was like, what in the hell have I done? I've gone from EDS to do now. Actually, I was okay with all that physical infrastructure, but what really made it kind of comical was MicroStrategy was famous for uh, week-long Caribbean cruises for the whole company in January. Well, our boot camp started the day after the company got back from their cruise. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> So you missed it. You got all these suntanned people and, you know, the people who they wanted for their original, for the initial presentations were not available. So the agenda started, started with one of the most technical presentations I've ever seen by two guys who were not destined to be teachers and, and not very communicative. It was this really technical, deep, discussion on how to connect to a database it's called odbc and i'm like so you got this crappy infrastructure in the dungeon of towers crescent and i got these two teachers who should never be <laughs> like it was it was it was a big like Chip. question mark for me i was like well what did i just do <laughs> i went from this massively awesome career at e eds to um to this place also i could wear jeans to work what in the hell have i done right so <laughs> but anyway it turned around quick and it was i stayed there 17 years so i did something right and that um one of the things that i'd like to ask you about uh just in terms of the rise of right like micro strategy in terms of your shares and the value of those shares and then it was sort of top of the mountain right and then oh, yeah. And then you stayed beyond that, right? Then did that eventually drop? And so tell me just about like that process and maybe you're finally, you're just like 17 years is a really long time. And so you had already mm -hmm. stayed past that cliff. So just tell me about that sort of yeah. emotionally, like, should I have left or, you know, why did you stay? And then what ultimately prompted you to, to leave? Yeah, sure. I joined in January 98. The company went public in August or September of 98. Yeah, I think it was August. And it was a meteoric rise. Mm -hmm. Like the, the stock was was famous for its rise. Right. And Michael Saylor, the founder, there was just, he's a, a renowned genius. And I don't know if he gets 
he's getting some accolades for his finance, financial genius and wizardry and investing genius. But we knew it all along back then that he was just an investing genius. And one of the things that he was intent on doing was every time the stock rose, he would split it because he would talk about how, you know, people, people don't want to buy a thousand thousand dollar a share price. So we're just going to keep splitting it. Uh, the average investor doesn't know, you know, that it really comes down to the overall value of all the stock. They just see a stock price that looks affordable. And if it keeps rising and we split it and it'll rise again, split it. He, he said things to that effect. Um, and that's exactly what it did. But what he also, what he also would say was, there's a reason why I gave everyone in this room at our quarterly meetings, he'd say, there's a reason why I gave everyone in this room and everyone in this company a thousand stock options. I'm intent on raising our stock price after splits, raising our stock price to $1,000 a share. And once I do that, everybody in this room will be a millionaire. And I was like, holy crap, what's wrong with this guy? Why is he giving me a million bucks? What? Why is he giving us a million bucks? This guy, this guy's my freaking hero, but he's full of shit because there's no way that's ever going to happen. About a year later, it happened. Maybe a year Year and a half. Yeah, about a, about a, so in the fall or winter of 99, we all became millionaires um, on paper. And uh, your, your vesting schedule was 20% per year. So you only got 20% of the actual stock right. Um, right. per year over the course of five years. So you didn't, even if you were a millionaire, you only, you only were, um, could get 200,000 of it or 400,000, I think at one point. Um, but I could not, I absolutely could not believe that he did it. And then I remember actually right before the Super Bowl, uh, we were running a Super Bowl commercial in January, February of 2000. Um, and Mike Saylor's birthday is February 4th, I think. It's a good friend of mine from high school's birthday as well. And we threw a, we rented FedEx Field to watch the Super Bowl, to throw a birthday party for Mike Saylor. And to just kind of, you know, live, live large. So uh, the Redskinettes were there, like with, you know, presented Mike with his birthday cake. And uh, when he blew out the candles, he said, uh, you know, I'm proud that we've gotten the shares, share price to $1,000 a share. But mark my words, next stop is $25,000 a share. And I'm like, so I'm going to be worth $25 million now? Because, I, I mean, now I believe it. Right. Now I believe it. We're going all the way to 25,000. Well, then March 13th, 2000, thereabouts, uh, we ended up having a, an accounting fiasco uh, that was uncovered by, uh, by the accounting firm for MicroStrategy. And uh, we had done several complicated deals, and a lot of them were 10-year deals. They were, you know, promised revenue over the course of 10 years. Um, but we recognized all the revenue in the quarter in which the deal was done. Right. And it was announced, it was announced that we would have to restate our earnings. Um, and March 13th, 2000, we popped the internet, the dot-com bubble. So the, the internet, the, uh, stock market bubble, the stock market tanked when Mark, when MicroStrategy, um, restated its earnings and Michael Saylor, who at one point was worth more than Ford and General Motors, um, personally 
Uh, he like became a trivial pursuit question because he lost more personal worth in one day than anybody else in history. So it was, uh, it was quite an up and down. Yeah. And we were also put into a quiet period, which uh, for trading purposes, which means we couldn't do anything with our, we could, all we could do is watch our share prices go down. You couldn't, you couldn't sell your stock. It was awful. <laughs> it was quite a ride, but it was uh, it was also quite an experience. And then, you know, after that, they did a lot of things with respect to retention. They gave they gave a lot more shares after that to make sure key and essential personnel stayed on. Yeah. Um, and I I stayed on. Just, I mean, quite frankly, I loved it. I mean, the cruises went away. The stock price wasn't there anymore, but the culture and the product. Yeah. And the people and the camaraderie. I mean, we really were a family. Um, some would say a cult, but we were we were very much a family. And it was it was absolutely just it was heaven. And like I said, I wanted to retire there. But, uh, you know, it, it just didn't play out that way just because uh, the focus after, at the end of my 17 years, the focus was way far less on on our core product, which was analytics and business mm-hmm. intelligence and started getting into all kinds of other stuff that uh, just were dis- distracting. And I, I kind of explain it this way. My best analogy is to say that we had this great, we were playing a great game and we drove the ball. If it's American football, we drove the ball down to the 10 yard line and we were about to score. And then our, our coach comes onto the field and takes the ball and says, hey, this is my ball. I don't feel like playing anymore. I'm going to go play some other sport. And uh, that's kind of what happened. We were like, like all the best engineers, like just kind of got put on other projects. And I was like, damn, hmm. this was this was fun while it lasted, but it doesn't look like it's, you know, yeah. it's going yeah. to go through some uh, rough times. And I don't want to be here for that. I've been through enough rough times at MicroStrategy. So. One of the things that I've been um, thinking about and writing a little bit about is that idea of knowing when to leave and knowing when to exit, right? And we've talked about like what we could have potentially done 15 years ago, but didn't have the courage. I do think maybe it's human nature to hold on tight when, when you've been somewhere where you do feel so connected or, you know, that kind of loyalty in tenure is, is somewhat changed, I think, in terms of the, the gig economy and people are moving more. But I do think there's such an art to knowing when to leave and, and knowing when to exit and listening to that and pursuing that. And, and I think at least for me going out on my own, maybe now for you, there's so much out there. There's so much opportunity. There's a lot of work to be done that it's really infinite. And so what happens is you get insular in the way that you think, because you've been somewhere for a while, or maybe even, even if you move around, it's almost like you just are what your experience is. So I just think like, even for people that maybe aren't performing well in a role, right. That, that just, it's not that it just is not the right fit. They hold on so tight versus like, let, let me start the conversation. Let me figure out where I want to go. Let me make those moves because I think the, the holding on too tight just becomes problematic in a whole other, a lot of other ways. It's so true. I, and I don't have the answer even after all I my <laughs> career experience. Um, there's, you can probably do a semester long course on when you, should, when you should quit. <laughs> no one to fold them, right? It was as easy. I wish it was as easy as finance. I remember in my finance 101 class, there was, Believe it or not, there's actually a formula, a way to calculate when you should just close your business and file for bankruptcy or when you should like mm-hmm. keep trying. Um, 
I wish there was a an emotional bankruptcy uh, type, of, <laughs> Ooh, type of calculation. I think you just came up with something that we got to work on. <laughs> Good name. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I wonder if there is yeah. anything documented about it because there is, it's, it's hard. It's yeah. hard to figure out when to leave. One last, well, actually two, I know we're kind of um, at time, but I, there's one thing about soft skills that I know you're um, also passionate about, and you've been such a great supporter of what I'm trying to do in this space in terms of highlighting some of the gaps in the, in the areas of development that I think are important for people to be talking about and thinking about. Tell me for you, just in terms of your experience in your career, what is one or two soft skills that you think are the most important and that are your, you know, if you were going to have your own kids or those that you're, you know, on your team now, right, that you want to see them develop? I would say, I mean, hands down, the most valuable is public speaking. All righty. Hands down. Like, no, there, there is, like, like, the second place is a distant second place. Like, to me, the most important soft skill is, is uh, public speaking. I used to be good at it. I uh, I did it quite a bit. I used to uh, I used to stand up in front of a thousand, well, a couple hundred people at MicroStrategy uh, boot camps, and uh, you know I used to used to love it. Uh, but you know you have to keep that edge sharp, and you can never you can never rest on your laurels and think, hey, I'm a good speaker, so I'll always be a good speaker. You actually have to. You have to actually always prepare and always keep that, keep that, keep sharpening that edge because mm-hmm. knives get, all knives get dull. Yeah. Um, but so I would say public speaking because it lends itself to so much more. Um, you know, you can do so much with public speaking and uh, you find yourself being, you know, being given leadership position positions just because you can speak. Yeah. Um, but then there's always, people who get into leadership positions and they stink at speaking anyway, you know, and you don't know how they got there, but uh, they got there. Um, yeah. Uh, as far as uh, second soft skill. That's a pretty good commercial. I like it. We don't even, I mean, <laughs> I like it. That's, I agree. I think it's so, so important. And um, there's, especially I notice now in this world of <clears throat> zoom and virtual meeting and even People that are, you know, I think every time you speak in front of a group of people is an opportunity to have an impact, even in a team mm-hmm. meeting, right? I don't even think of it as an instructor in front of 100 people. I think there's always ways to communicate and influence it in any situation. And I feel like there's so much we could do to help people be better at that and to develop that skill and to recognize the moment that you have and use it. Mm-hmm. So I back Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Okay. All right. And then I would, my last question is about young Joe, young, young Joe. And, um, um, (laughs) rowdy, rambunctious Joe. And, um, just given now, as you think about outside of what we talked about with the concussion stuff, because I think that's specific, but is there any advice or counsel that you would give Joe to help, uh, make life a little bit easier or to, I would say, you know, when you think about everything that you, the things you've had to go through or, or pivot through, you know, what, what could have helped if you had a little opportunity to sit with young Joe? You know, I would, I would actually say, uh, this has been on my mind a lot lately. I would actually say, uh, I would tell young Joe to take, take leadership, take leadership 
opportunities and just leadership in general a lot more seriously. Mm. Um, because I, I always, I always fell into leadership roles, but it was through just kind of organic rises. You know, there was there was always those those people who really wanted to be leaders, and so they would apply for leadership positions, and you just you'd see somebody rise up and become the manager of your team, and everybody on the team is just like, oh gosh, how long before this asshole fails? You know, and like you just know it. Like yeah. everybody's been a part of that team, whether it's like. The guy who wants so badly to be the captain of your football team, but nobody likes him, like, or it's somebody who wants to be so badly the leader of the team at work or whatever. And, uh, you know, I, I always knew that I, I would like just kind of, you know, rise slowly into leadership positions or just kind of organically be, you know, find myself at those positions. But I always, and I never kind of took seriously the science of the science of leadership or mm-hmm. maybe the discipline, the discipline of leadership um, and just kind of really and truly kind of applying for leadership positions and saying, you need me. Like instead of, I would always instead let them find me and say, you know, we need we need to promote Joe after all, damn it. I mean, he's been passed up uh, too many times or he's been, why did we pass up on Joe? Why did we bring this outsider in? Joe has what we need. Well, the reason why I didn't, the reason why I didn't, I got passed up in a few opportunities was just because I never really took things seriously. I, I never took the leadership discipline seriously. And um, actually, I think what it comes down to is something that I learned way too late in my career um, about leadership and that um, leadership has to be, you, you have to have your priorities straight when you're leading a team. It has to be my mission. Uh, I got this from an army general. It has to be my mission, my man, and then me. So in, in the real world, my mission, my men and ladies, and me. Um <laughs> And, you know, I was this guy who used to put people before the mission. I would fight stupid battles on behalf of my team. Like, oh, I don't want, we shouldn't have to enter hours into a stupid timesheet system. We already record our activity in this other system. And I would go to battle. I would, I would die on stupid hills mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I didn't understand the art of leadership. And I didn't understand the seriousness and I didn't take things the, the discipline of serious of leadership seriously. And when I was told that by this army general, my mission, my man, and the me, I was like, holy crap, that's been part of my problem this whole life or this throughout my leadership career. I've always put the people, my people before the mission and I would fight these stupid battles. And uh, I think that's, that's a long winded way of saying that I would, better understand the leadership discipline and the importance of priorities when you are when you are leading a team. I love it. I love it. And I think also one other component to that is seeing yourself as the leader, right? Because I think 
it's, it's sometimes when you're waiting to be tapped, you're waiting for someone else to tell you, yeah, you're the leader. Like we, we back you. And so you need that confidence to go and lead versus what you're saying, which I think is it's in there and I have it. And the part about aligning to business mission, uh, it's so it's like that emotional aspect of the humanity that you have. Right. And sort of figuring out where that fits in when there's a mission that you have to deliver on and, and how do you, it's what you described is such great advice. It's not necessarily super easy to execute. Um, and I think it's, it's a, you know, it's a business maturity, but it's great to have people thinking about that. And what a great thing to think about for people, depending on where they are in their own careers right now. So thank you. This was wonderful. I had such a good time. I love talking with you. This was awesome. I was really nervous because I told you I stink on stage. (laughs) So yes, yeah. stop I, I would be the world's worst actor. No. So you, you are great <laughs> so this, and you're such a good storyteller. And I feel like your honesty and um, just your candor about everything. It's so it's so great. So thank you. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you, Teresa. Thanks for the opportunity. Sure. And uh, I hope I, I, I know I'll stack up higher than Bergen and Mike Chikaitis, but uh, <laughs> hopefully uh Hopefully I stack up, you know, pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good compared to the rest of your podcast. (laughs) Thanks, Joe. Appreciate what you said about assuming positive intent and applying some humanity when having to deal with conflict. Great advice on how public speaking is so critical to being successful and something you have to continue to hone in practice. And that mission, the team, and then yourself are the keys to being a great leader. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode. And thank you to our Relatable community for listening to our discussions. If you get a moment, please subscribe and rate the Relatable podcast. We can be found on your favorite streaming platform. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected. Stay connected.